Luke 10.25, the parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho, when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Good morning, church. There's a pub in Tower Hamlets called the Good Samaritan. I wonder if you know where it is. One point if you said Whitechapel. Two points if you said next to the Royal London Hospital. And ten points if you knew that it's next to the old London Hospital Medical College where I studied to become a doctor. The pub got its name because the historical seal of the London Hospital featured a representation of the Good Samaritan in front of the hospital. More recently, Good Sam is the name of the app used to run the NHS volunteer service to support those self-isolating from COVID-19 at home. Luke's Gospel is a physician's story. I suspect Dr Luke, who recorded this parable of Jesus in chapter 10, would be rather pleased that the Good Samaritan would become synonymous with a bricks and mortar hospital and a digital online medical support service. And I see the Good Sam platform can also be used remotely to access the mobile phone of someone who needs the emergency services. So, observe an ancient paramedic in action. Notice he sees, he cares, he goes, and he applies first aid. He removes him from danger on his donkey ambulance. He risks his life. There's a risk of him being attacked and robbed. He risks rejection, although you wouldn't think that the injured man was in a position to be picky about the ethnicity of his rescuer. He risks his finances. 
essentially offering his credit card details to the innkeeper. And he follows things up, like any good doctor. There's clearly considerable commitment and inconvenience that good Sam is invested in this man that can only be explained by that word pity. It has captivated his heart, his compassion for this injured man. Perhaps it's also worth recognising that Good Samaritan was a nickname added later by those who added verses, chapters and paragraphs, subheadings. So just in case you were thinking, wow, wasn't the injured man lucky that it was the Good Samaritan that was passing by, not one of the regular ones? No, good was not the description that Jesus or Luke gave. So it's an old story but with a modern application that remains as relevant and radical today as it was 2,000 years ago. And Jesus' story challenges our narrow view of those God expects us to reach out to with compassion. It redefines neighbours as strangers in need. And more, it probes and exposes the racist culture of first century Palestine and of 21st century London. But it also defines the fault line of, of sectarianism and, and prejudice, not as a national boundary or a wall or the railway tracks, but the human heart. Little did this expert of the law know that his question was about to provide the foundation for a story that would reverberate through centuries. As was often the way, Jesus answered the question with a question. When we have questions, God doesn't necessarily tell us the answer. He leads us to it. And that's how good teachers teach their pupils. If my son Adam asks me what day it is, I can tell him it's Sunday and he hasn't learned anything. Or I can say, well, yesterday was Saturday and tomorrow is Monday. And so what day do you think it is today? And Jesus knew the heart of those asking him questions. And we read that this question was designed to test Jesus. So it may be that the questioner was less interested in the answer and more concerned with bigging himself up and putting Jesus down. But the outcome was quite the opposite. As in Mary's song in Luke 1, he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he's sent the rich away empty. And those who are hungry and humble, not those who are proud and full of themselves, they are the ones Jesus lifts up. You know, we're just half a mile away from where the mighty East India company was based in the docks of London. One of the companies that built the empire was conscious of the importance of maintaining that hierarchy of power, even had its own quasi-imperial army. The rich owners had their place, the poor workers had theirs, and Mary's song, the Magnificat, was apparently excluded from its traditional place in Evensong in churches run by the company in India, banned because it was considered to be subversive, to foster 
revolution. Yet the word of God is revolutionary. The word of Jesus subverts the world order of power and of humility. Apparently years later, Gandhi requested that uh, the song be read in all the places where the British flag was being lowered on the final day of imperial rule in India. So we read that this lawyer wanted to justify himself. He would have known the detail of the law of Moses inside and out and seemed keen for Jesus to confirm that he ticked all the boxes. He gives an excellent summary, it has to be said, of all the rules and the regulations, all pointing, all concentrated, distilled down into the importance of loving God and loving others. But it seems the simplicity of Jesus' response, do this and you will live, pulls the man up short. It's not enough to be correct in God's kingdom, having your theory sorted out, believing the right things and following the rules wins you religion points, but loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. And here is the practical double lesson. Love your neighbour. That's the standard. That's the pass mark. And that's where we all fail. The writer C.S. Lewis said, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. Jesus' heart test was not based on how loving we are to the lovely who love us, but the real acid test of whether we have grasped the grace of God comes when we have to love our enemies. And of course, in the Sermon of the Mount, famous verse, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your neighbours and pray for those who persecute you. When we judge others by our standards, we justify our selective love. When we judge others according to the standard of God's grace, his undeserved love for us, we cannot look down on our fellow human being. We look up to them in our God-given role of grace bearers. The man was quoting from Leviticus 19, from verse 17, do not... Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart, it says, and then among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. And your neighbour, therefore, seems to be your fellow Israelite, one of your people. And perhaps this is what the man had in mind when he asked, in order to justify himself, Jesus, just checking, who is my neighbour? He's thinking, I really hope Jesus gives me the the verse 18 answer, he's thinking, because I just love all of my people. There is something about loving the neighbours who are just like me that I just love. But remember, this guy knows the law very well. And he very well knows that after a verse 18, there's also a verse 34. I have to thank my favourite Bible expert, my dad, for pointing this one out to me. Happy Father's Day, Dad. Verse 34 says the foreigner or alien in some translations residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself for you were foreigners in Egypt. 
feels like Jesus is about to do one of those. You have heard that it was said that your neighbours are your people, but I tell you, dot, dot, dot. I've asked my wife, Diana, to speak about her experience of loving neighbours. I want to start by asking you a question. Have you ever had someone come into your life who you didn't expect, who maybe you overlooked a little bit, but who became really, really important? I'm going to tell you a story about my life and how that happened to me. I met someone back in the 1990s. I'd recently moved into a new neighbourhood. I'd bought a new house in Poplar just up the road and it was a really lovely house and there was lots of people all moving in at the same time. So we all got chatting and, you know, it's kind of very special, very new. And as time went on, I met a lady called Lynn. Now, Lynn lived at number eight and they were a wonderful family. My little boy, Stephen, became really good friends with her children. And I just... I just wondered, like, there was something quite different about her, though. And I wasn't really used to people being so joyful and so full of peace and so kind of caring. I was more used to friends that kind of gossiped a bit or, you know, did things they shouldn't have done, probably was what I was doing at that time. And it just made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. But at the same time, it made me feel really warm inside and really looked after. Anyway, as time went on, I kind of find, found myself avoiding, uh, avoiding Lynn a bit because I just felt like I wasn't really good enough um, to kind of be around her. It sounds really strange, but yeah, there was things that I was into at that time, which probably um, now looking back, they weren't a good thing. Um, so I used to drink quite a lot and um, have parties at my house and, you know, kind of smoke weed and stuff and yeah, it wasn't good. It wasn't good for me. It wasn't good for my son. Anyway, um, my life started to change direction and things started to go really wrong. Um, I separated from my partner who I'd moved in with and that was really significant and it, it was a really difficult time actually because I just felt like the lo loneliness like really hit me and I worked full time so I was working quite long hours and um, having to pay a mortgage. So things started to change and I just started to feel like an emptiness so one night, I remember um, knocking on Lynn's house, knocking on her door, and I wouldn't usually, like, knock on her door, um, but I was feeling really desperate, like I just needed someone to talk to. So anyway, she invited me in, and for the next couple of hours, I sat in her living room. I'll always remember it. I sat in her living room. I ended up in tears, just, just pouring out my life to her and telling her how disappointed I was of how things had turned out. And I just, I just really noticed that she was... She was really different. She wasn't um, trying to advise me. She wasn't trying to judge me. She just listened. And that was a really significant moment um, for me, realising that people, people are, there is genuine people out there. So anyway, time went on. And I remember one day Lynn asked me if I wanted to go to church. And I was a little bit surprised because um, I hadn't been to church for years. And I did kind of know that she was a Christian, but I didn't, I didn't really expect her to ask me. So I said no. I was like kind of not really um, interested, but I said it in a nice way. Anyway, so um, life went on and she asked me again. And this time I said yes, because I thought it'd be really good for Stephen to, um, to go to Sunday school because I went to Sunday school as a child. So we went along and um, I was really surprised. Like it wasn't in a church building 
and um, it was in a community centre and people just seemed really friendly and just really accepting of us and whereas in churches before I'd always um, been told to be quiet as a child and kind of be seen and not heard it wasn't really like that at Tower Hamlets Community Church people were just really welcoming and really understanding so I went back and I went back and I went back and little by little I just started to realise that I was missing something in my life. I was missing being part of something, like part of a community of people. I didn't at the time realise that um, that God was involved in it, even though they had a Bible teaching every week. At first, I didn't realise that that was what it was. But as time went on, I started to ask questions about why these people seemed so different. And one night, I remember um, reading this booklet that had been given to me. In fact, it was called Coming Home. And I, I thought that I was in a home, a great home, and that I had come home in a way, but I hadn't. And I started reading this book, and it talked about how, um, how Jesus was really important and how he died for me and how I could come to know God. And I realised this was what everyone in this church had. They had faith in God. So I prayed that night and gave my life to Jesus. And I cried for a long time, like poured out my heart, asked him for a fresh start. And, yeah, it was amazing, like, few weeks that followed I just remember feeling this deep deep peace and kind of a, a release of guilt because I felt very guilty about being on my own with my son and lots of things that I'd done I felt really guilty about but I just felt like he'd taken that away and I didn't have to worry about that because I was accepted accepted by God and accepted by this new community of people so anyway going back to the neighborhood so I I then started to think actually, I really want to reach out to my neighbours and I really want to find people that I can um, love, just like Lynn had done for me. So uh, over the years, God changed my heart in such a way that I began then to reach out to neighbours. So there's been various various times when um, I've really felt I should talk to people who really, I mean, in the past, I would just have walked past or I would just have thought, oh, no, I haven't got the time or, you know, that person's a bit troubled, so I'm not going to get involved in that. I mean, there was one lady on, that I met on a bridge that I used to walk across going to school every day. And I just felt one day I should talk to her and we got chatting and, and one thing led to another and she ended up coming to church and then we ended, ended up becoming really good friends. And it was just amazing how that happened. It was just a simple thing of walking across this bridge and saying hi and just making it more than hello, but asking her about her life. You know, and there's been other situations where I've met, I met a lady in the park and she started talking to my grandson and just one thing led to another and it turned out that she was actually looking for a church and she's now been part of our church for quite a long time and it's just so wonderful that that conversation led to that. You know, and you know, there's been many other examples of how I've just felt the love of God in me and remembering how significant Lynn was to me and how she looked after me and how she went out of her way for me, you know, and how that is now in my life. And um, yeah, just thinking about 2020 because this has been a really strange time for me, um, not being able to go out much, not being able to visit people in their homes and, you know, run courses and, and just be a neighbour, like a proper neighbour, what, what I thought was a proper neighbour. But I remember at the beginning of the lockdown, asking God in a prayer, Lord, what do you want to do with me at this time? Like, what, how do you want to use me? And he brought to mind the verse that says in John 13, 
Let me give you a new command. Love one another. This is how everyone will recognize that you are mine when, you see the, when they see the love that you have for one another. And I just thought, well, actually, love is not just about meeting in people's houses. It's about writing cards. It's about making food for people. It's about doing other things. So I recently started um, doing food for my neighbor on a Thursday night. And that's really brought us close together. And I've started to, um, at weekends, instead of just making one Sunday dinner for us, I've started to make two. So that other one I can bless someone else with. And I also, um, I've got like a thing where I like to write cards. So at the beginning of the lockdown, I wrote about 15 cards and took them round to Shaftesbury Lodge, which is where a lot of elderly residents live. And um, they got delivered into their doors. And it's just just little acts of kindness like that, that God has put on my heart that I can do for others in this time. You know, that it's not a wasted time. It's a time that we can be caring for each other. And I, I truly believe that that's because of the love that Jesus has put into my heart, you know. And that all started with one neighbour who lived at number eight, who I kind of overlooked for quite some time, but who, because of her care and attention and love of me, that is now kind of um, a domino effect, if you like to say, is that I am now reaching out and loving my neighbours, you know, in a way that I never even thought was possible, you know, and it's just so amazing. So I just want to give thanks to God this morning for, for Lynn, you know, I want to, you know, they say, you know, clapping for the carers, but I want to clap my neighbour, I want to clap Lynn this morning and say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to me and to love me you know, even when I wasn't that interested in you. Thank you so much, because that has become part of my ministry now and part of my life is loving, loving my neighbours. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Diana. So why did Jesus use a Samaritan in the parable? OK, ready for a history lesson? So when the people of Judah and Israel were taken captive and exiled in Babylon, the Assyrians left some of the residents of the northern capital, Samaria, behind and introduced immigrants from elsewhere. In time, these native Jews and foreigners integrated, intermarried and were known as Samaritans. When the exiles returned, there was great animosity between them and the Samaritan Jews. They viewed them as traitors, half-breeds, who threatened the pure Jewish religion and race. And it was so bad that if you wanted to insult someone, what did you call them? You, you Samaritan. So the scene is set for Jesus to give a dramatic example of a pure Jew reaching out to a despised Samaritan with love and compassion. And that would have been a powerful enough story but Jesus flips it round and his audience totally flips out. If there's one thing worse than having to subject your enemy to your love and compassion. It's the thought of surrendering control and being the object of your enemy's love and compassion. That's humiliating. It's rare for a mainstream movie celebrating victory over racial prejudice to make the hero and African-American. Have you noticed that? But that's what Jesus is doing. He's making the hero the minority figure. 
to make a very big point. If Jesus is going to recast the character of a Samaritan in the minds of his audience, it's not going to be as a victim whose life is dependent on the charity of the Jewish resourceful protector, rescuer, power figure, but as one who fulfills that role himself. The implication of making the priest and the Levite the anti-heroes, if you like, is to invert the stereotypes. Being a caring neighbour is not just for, for one of their own kind or for the professionals whose, whose job it is, if you like. The expectation was, of course, that the, that the priest and the Levite, the, the respected righteous men who work in the temple should have been the first one to reach out and help. Not so. Who are the subjects of our negative stereotyping? These are mine, just from this week. So I read on the BBC website, Marcus Rashford calls for government free school meals U-turn. And I immediately thought, are there two Marcus Rashfords? I passed a young black guy in the street wearing a Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon t-shirt. Look it up, 1970s prog rock, slightly psychedelic. And I thought, that's strange. Black people don't like Pink Floyd. Maybe he ordered a George Floyd t-shirt and got the wrong one. We watched James Blake's powerful paint a picture in our service two weeks ago. Watch it if you haven't. In it he says, if you focus on the small marred corner of the painting, you miss out on the beauty of the whole picture. And that's how stereotypes work. They focus on the small negative aspects of someone's character on, or on negative aspects of a culture or people group. And they, they blow it up to use it to, to, as if it's the full picture. As the body of Jesus, we are to be activists, to speak up for the oppressed, to call out injustice, to amplify the voices of those who have been drowned out. But actions speak louder than words, don't they? I believe the church's voice on anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, apartheid, civil rights, slavery, has been compromised and is still being compromised. There's so many good things happening in the British church at the moment. Sadly, the story this week of this gentleman, Augustine Tana Im, an African-American Durham University graduate, is not one of them. His application for the position of curate at an Anglican church in the south of England was rejected on the grounds that the demographic of the parish is monochrome white working class where you might feel uncomfortable. How insulting. How patronising. Yes. But what a missed opportunity for a monochrome white congregation. I hope there are churches up and down the country queuing up to snap this guy up. I once sat with the pastor of the Baptist church that I was a member of 
for two years in Harare, Zimbabwe. What began as a brotherly getting to know each other chat became progressively heated around the subject of race. He had experienced the degradation of white dominance over the majority black African population there and in South Africa. And the, as the conversation went on, the boundary between his animosity toward white colonialism and his feelings toward me felt uncomfortably blurred. I could hardly get a word in edgeways. Any sort of reassurance that I'm not racist would have left, would have, it would have felt completely inadequate. Eventually I chipped in. Pastor Dubé, of course I'm a racist. He was shocked. I was shocked. I don't remember my exact words, but I, I explained that I, I've grown up in a society where racism is often accepted as the norm and overlooked. There are attitudes that I have learned that I need to unlearn. And this was even though I grew up in a, in a home that welcomed people of all nationality, race and religion. I'm very grateful to my parents for that and the fact that they sent me to a, a, a multiracial school in South London. But as a Christian, I realised that it's not enough to just not be racist. My attitudes and words need to be anti-racist. It needs to turn back the tide of prejudice. Our pastor Tony loves to remind us that most of us would have nothing in common in our church if it wasn't for Jesus. Our differences as a multicultural, multi-generational church can be our strengths, but they can be our weakness. At THCC we're gaining a broader relevance to our community and our world as we better represent the life experience of our world and our community. Did you know that leg fractures heal quicker by putting weight on them and not resting them? And maybe we would benefit by putting more weight and emphasis on our differences at THCC. Not, not as a way to seek division, but as a way to, to acknowledge and recognise and celebrate the richness of our shared heritage in Jesus. To marvel that Jesus has made one out of many parts. This is the Latin motto of the Royal London Hospital. I won't try. It means I am human and I think nothing human is alien to me. London, my city, has for centuries taken all comers and long may it last. I love that in the 16 homes in Daniel Bolklose where we live in Poplar, we, we, we have neighbours from about 10 different countries I love that our church doesn't see anyone who comes in as an alien, as a stranger, but, but welcomes them. Seeing the humanity in all, seeing every new person as a, an opportunity to, to discover a new story. And it's all because we have a good Samaritan. One who did not pass by, 
and at great cost, he saw us, he pitied us, he came to us, and he tended to our wounds and moved us out of danger. Unlike in the parable, our rescuer was attacked and gave his naked, bloody life in order to save ours. If you don't know Jesus, then the most neighbourly thing I can do today is to say to you that you need him and his love. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.